Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. I'm Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Adam Alter. Adam Alter is an associate professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business with an affiliated appointment in the New York University of Psychology Department. I've heard of him because Joe Rogan was talking about him. We've had him as a potential guest for a while. He's really amazing. His book, Irresistible, talks about the increasing attraction of tech and how they, as, as technological platforms and devices become more refined, they become, to, well, to use the title of his book, Irresistible. So I had a conversation with him about addiction, about tech addiction, about where the responsibility for the increase in tech addiction lies, what the potential solution could be, what is suggested by the increase in our uh, inability to put tech down. It was a really, really good conversation. You might want to have a look at some of the clips because most people here think he's a bit of a looker as well. No, just you. Oh, it's just me. (laughs) I think he's a bit of a looker as well. He's got good hair, I thought. It goes like that. He had sort of like, if you think of like, remember, peak Hugh Grant, you know, if you say around, is that Notting Hill around then, you know, or even those Hollywood films such as Mickey Blue Eyes. He's got, look, let's not get bogged down in that. This is about tech addiction. This is about (laughs) how our attention, our consciousness is being mined and refined and owned by corporations that do not love you. As David Foster Wallace said, my fear is, said David Foster Wallace, obviously before his death, at which point tech was nowhere near the status in now, that we would be spending increasing amount of times staring at screens on on the other side of which are people that do not love you and want to sell you things. So we've got to be careful. And this Adam Alter book really talks about that. So you're going to love this podcast. I can tell you're going to love it. Drunk Pink Tank. Drunk Tank Pink. What the hell is he talking about there in his 2013 book? How hidden forces in the world around us shape our thoughts, feelings and behaviours. I think I'd like that. I think I'll read that as well. Everyone's nodding. Jen and Demaya. Open the door. I can't feel very isolated. <laughs> what kind of qualities of sound are you trying to create? A man in a barrel. A man in a podcast studio. <laughs> a man in a podcast studio. Right. Well, anyway, have you read Drunk Tank Pink? Have no. you? I've also I like those. You've seen it. Well, well done, Demaya. At least you've looked at it if you've not read it. I don't think Drunk Tank Pink is something that something should be called. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> not like my bookie book, a terrific <laughs> title for a book that lets you know exactly what it is. A book that's not serious. <laughs> All right. He'd done a good TED talk, apparently, called Why Our Screens Make Us Less Happy, and he was ahead of the curve. He said, this is one of my favourite bits, actually, of the conversation, that when he realised he was onto something, like that he didn't have to convince people so heartily that his concerns about screens were legitimate, was when Sean Parker said, oh, no, when we were designing Facebook, we didn't give a toss about the effect it had on people all we wanted was minutes of them staring at the screen so you know i know you likely are listening to this on your phone right now i know that i promote this on instagram and facebook and twitter and youtube and all of that but i think what we have to learn is to have to be uh judicious with our use of these devices and he does offer some tips finally tips that he himself ignores and that's a rather a nice bit of the podcast 
Um, hold on. So have we got any other kind of content? Oh, here's some comments from previous podcasts. Remember when I had Jan Kestrel, which, by the way, Jen, you put out onto YouTube. <laughs> I know. With a subtitle that says, this is a hypersexual technique or something. Poor dear Jay and Kestrel, spiritual shamans that want little more than to bring love into the world, although they're completely unembarrassed about sex because they obviously believe, quite correctly in my view, that it's perfectly natural. What they don't want is a subtitle saying that they have hypersexual techniques. Jenny May. I know. It's Why do you think that happened? Because if my eyes just are... Hyper or something. It's <laughs> I negligent. didn't write it. I didn't write it. I just missed it when I was proofreading. Well, you do you do proofread? Yeah. I don't think you should do that anymore. Why don't you let Demai do okay. it? You're negligent. Were you, I'm do, tired. Were you, you're not <laughs> You're not tired. Have you, have you been drinking at work or is it drugs no, I don't that you do? Drink in work. Well, you drink out of work? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Here's some comments about the uh, about the episode I done with uh, Jay and Kestrel. This person here says, hey, I noticed in the YouTube video that it said <laughs> hypersexual tension. Why was that? Is someone Maybe it that, was the sign. Is one of the people... No, let me just continue <laughs> reading this comment. Is one of the people that works for you dreadfully inefficient, possibly drunk at work? You, Russell, you deserve better. Oh, thank you for that comment. And that that's from uh, David Cameron. <laughs> said that. David Cameron. <laughs> Natty in Kaliuga says I'm so interested in these shaman I believe horse is my spirit animal or one of them <laughs> I found out what my spirit huh? animal is what? I found out what my primal zodiac animal is you're shouting at me <laughs> to tell me what but you know what your spirit animal is it's a hermit crab <laughs> <laughs> that's a ridiculous you should be ashamed of your spirit animal a crab. I believe the hermit crab uh, steals other crab shells, no, doesn't it? No, we find huh? slightly better shells to occupy. He's a thief. He's a squatter. <laughs> Your spirit animal is a shell squatter, isn't it? No. I bet I bet a hermit crab is a very kind of animal that would misinterpret <laughs> a shaman's wisdom as hypersexual tension or whatever it was you typed up. The hermit crab. Do you know what my spirit I animal is? I think it's is? like yours is toucan. I think I looked it up. If it's not. It's the leopard. No, it's not. It's the no, sexy it leopard. It's, leopard. <laughs> it's the raven. It's the wolf. My spirit animal's always been the wolf, you know? Because I guess because I'm so sexy, you know? I guess I'm a lone wolf out on the hills, baby, howling at the moon. Oh, I guess I ain't more of a little hermit crab. I don't want to be a hermit crab. No, no one does. No one does. And yet someone is, and it's you. You're the only person who has that spirit animal. Everyone else has got a slightly better one. But, but, I mean, at least some crabs have the gusto to have their own exoskeleton. Apparently we just want to be loved. Well, I can see why you aren't. It's because of bad subtitling and shell theft. How did you find it out, by the way? Primal Zodiac sign you website. Twit. Primal Zodiac sign. Well, sorry that I inter- Natty and Caliuga. <laughs> I'm sorry that your message was interrupted by his claptrap. Um, you, my spirit animal, or one of them, is a horse. Jenny's is who knows a hermit crab. Do I? Do you have one? Well done. It's probably best not to know, isn't it? Because it means what you've done there is you're living in the real world. No, not to criticise the old uh, shamans and people that are into that. Who cares? It's fun. Uh, but I would love to journey to find out what what other animals are aspects of my soul. You sure interview some interesting folk. Yeah, I love Jay and Kestrel. They're beautiful, beautiful people. They deserve better. Solace of sound. Great chat. 
we have a lot we can learn from these very ancient humble practices of shamanism and connection to the natural world once you open it up it's a beautiful path yeah i agree mate Calicious, curvilicious yogini that's a very provocative name Cur curlylicious no curvilicious even curly that would just mean you know curly but curvilicious yogini curvilicious yogini says when i was in glastonbury nine years ago i met jay i remember he had a genuine open loving energy he struck me as the kind of man that would be deeply wounded if at some point in the future he was misrepresented by an erroneous subtitle <laughs> i only pray this is never visited upon him by a lowly loathsome hermit crab thank you for that curvilicious yogini Chris Conscious Cook says, I also had an animalistic sign before my wife was pregnant. I feel the animla or animal spirit world connect with me all the time when I need it. It's pure magic. Yeah, nice one, Chris Conscious Cook. Here's some promo for me. We're doing these, oh, sign up for the Russell Brand email list, right? Because we do these Zoom calls every couple of weeks. Have a, we'll send, like, you can have a clip. I'll post a clip somewhere. They're really good, these Zoom calls. Uh, they're a laugh. I answer people's questions. I'm pretty funny, aren't I, Demire? On there. Lovely smile, Demire. Enthusiastic. Good worker. Funny, aren't I, Jen, on there? Ugh, just a squint. Just a squint from someone in a shell. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so sign up to that. You'll love them. Stay up to date with ways to get plug in. Oh, plugged in. You've emboldened the word plug in and then you've put it in the present tense. To get plugged in to this community of like-minded people and be the first to know about upcoming events. Do type these now. You're learning. You're doing very well, Demire. Well done, Chen. <laughs> Check out how is how is Demire meant to learn when she's being mentored so poorly by, oh. <laughs> by a scuttle crab. Um, Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips from the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get notified of new videos. We're posting more than ever. Are we, Jen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check out my YouTube. <laughs> All right, if you want to get in touch with me on social media, you can. I'm called Russell Brand. Now, let's get into the Adam Alter uh, podcast with me, Russell Brand, who I am. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Adam, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. I love your book, Irresistible, and I um I'm reading it at the moment, and I'm very grateful to you for making time uh, making time for us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Tell me what made you first become interested in the subject of addiction, particularly tech addiction, and how you relate it to um, addiction as more commonly understood. I'll get to the second part first. So this, this question of how it relates to addiction more broadly, you know, it, the traditional version of addiction is involves the ingestion of a substance. So you take some substance into your body and has physiological effects and that, that leads you to want more of the substance. It produces certain responses that, that uh, make that substance really desirable. And so you keep chasing it over time. You need bigger and bigger doses as you tolerate it more. So that's, that's substance addiction, which is the traditional definition. What's really interesting about the last 20 or 30 years is that we've become so good at designing experiences that we can make experiences addictive without there needing to be a substance. 
So you don't even need to take something into your body now to experience that same sort of addictive response where you chase that high, whether it's in the form of likes on Instagram or whether it's chasing emails and wondering what you're going to get next in your inbox. doesn't matter what it is. It's different for different people, but we're so good at designing these experiences now that you can make an experience addictive in the way that it used to be sort of reserved for substances. Um, I got into this because I studied human judgment and decision-making, um, and that's, that's what my PhD is, is, uh, is specialized in. And I think for a lot of people who study um, psychology and um, who are just interested in human behavior, what we do is we ask ourselves, what's the strangest thing about my behavior or what's something interesting in my behavior that I'd like to, to better understand? And for me, it was the fact that from, from the year 2007, when the iPhone was first introduced to the year, for me, it was about the year 2010, that three-year period, I went from spending about 10 minutes a day holding my phone to spending about four hours a day holding my phone. And I wanted to understand what was going on there. Why, why was I unable to spend less time glued to that device? Why did it suddenly take on such a huge role in my life? Um, to the tune of something like 10 to 15 years of our lives will be spent on them. And so that's how I got interested in this question. And I've spent the last roughly 10 years focused on it. And you believe and examine and outline that this is because the manufacturers of these products and these experiences have become so adept at constructing them that they have become uh, in the, uh, the uh, irresistible, to quote the title of your book. Yeah, basically. I, I think there are two main ways they create these products that we can't resist. The one is, as you say, there's a sort of toolbox and they're so adept at picking these tools out of the toolbox and building them into the products we use. So, you know, one, one example of this is um, the, the sort of intermittent reward that comes from engaging with a lot of these platforms. You know, you post something on Instagram, maybe no one's gonna to respond to it, but there's a chance a lot of people will and there's a high that comes from that, a social high we get from seeing all those responses. And so if you build enough of these little hooks into your products, you're more likely to make them hard to resist. But the thing is, you don't need to be a psychological genius to understand people um, when you have access to billions of data points. Because what, what you can do is you don't need a theory. All you need to do is you create 10 versions of your product, you release those 10 versions to different groups of people in the population, and then you watch what they do. And it, it turns out that version A, where the button is in the top left of this particular product, people spend an extra 10 minutes a day. Then you do a new thing. You build in likes to your, your product versus no likes and see what happens. And when you have likes, people spend an extra 20 minutes a day. And if you do this over and over again and you keep picking the, the kind of best, the winner of each of those different tests, what ends up happening is the version that lands on your and my desktop or your and my phone has gone through these, this like trial by combat, 20 rounds of that. It's been weaponized and evolved to be the most addictive version of that product. So the first version may not have been all that good, but by the 20th round of this, by the 20th generation, you and I are up against just incredible amounts of data and very smart people. It's very, very difficult for us to compete with that. It's interesting how you describe that process of ongoing aggregation. I once saw like the uh, 
UK entertainer and hypnotist Darren Brown do a grift that made it seem like he was predicting the outcome of uh, numerous horse races, but actually what he was doing is sending numerous people every possible v- uh, outcome. You know, and so one person got the correct prediction to a, like a run of ten horse races and couldn't believe that they were getting posted these anonymous letters. And so it seems like we are the pro- in the process of mass. uh, aggregation and that because the ability for like connectivity that sort of the online world has presented provides an opportunity for it to happen so quickly it's it's faster than a human being can tolerate yeah absolutely i mean we evolve very slowly as a species relative to the 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 speed at which these devices evolve and how sophisticated they become really fast so this this um this analogy you're giving, we're all the people who arrive at that that point of feeling like those 10 horse races have fallen right in our laps. You know, you use these products, they're really sticky. It's so hard to, to stop using them. And um, they, they just tap into some very sort of low level um, human motivations and desires and, and psychological needs. And so there's not much we can do. It's, it's very, very difficult for us to just use sheer willpower to resist them. And that's especially true for young people, but it's it's true for older adults as well. This is true for, uh, it's commonly understood with regard to, should we call it traditional addiction? You know, like my back, I'm in recovery from sort of substance misuse, but I have found that the techniques and methods that were applied to help me to remain one day at a time drug and alcohol free have been applicable in the numerous subsequent addictions that automatically sprang up. And this is pretty common to most addicts as I understand it, that um, the, the, the techniques are as applicable of course with behavioral addictions obviously abstinence as you um, outline in your book is not an option in a world where online interconnectivity is uh, ordinary and we might as well say necessary um but like say for example with food addictions which are obviously very very common they, they require a kind of a strategy of order and discipline same as with uh, sexual addictions and pornography and behavioral sexual addiction it requires a kind of strategy and, and in a sense it's a because as you say willpower is useless it's, it requires counterintuitively a surrendering of will as opposed to an exertion of will it becomes like all right i don't know what to do you tell me what to do and i'll simply do what you tell me it was like a mm-hmm. surrender which is a very very conventional spiritual uh principle or at least that was the vehicle via which most of people understood that principle you know in its uh, earliest form yeah i think there's something that's there's something really liberating about that idea right that um you're going to stop fighting and and instead have structures in place that mean that you don't have to fight because i think fighting for any human being is a really exhausting way to live um, and you're ultimately going to lose across yeah. the long the long run. Um, so, so forced abstinence, abstinence or abstinence by will, when you really want something, it's just almost never the the trick for a human across a reasonable time span. And so, so much of of this, especially for the kind of thing where you can't abstain, you cannot, you know, we can't go cold turkey on tech. Um, you you just need you need things you you need structures in place. You need um, ways of dealing with it that um, that mean that you're not constantly drawing on those limited willpower resources yes because it's impossible one thing you um in your book mate where you, where you say you say that 
um, conventionally addiction is understood and I would say this as a sort of a member of numerous recovery communities it still is understood as to kind of be um, endemic or in- inherent within the individual actually inherent within the individual um, but you make a case for addiction being environmental can you talk us through that idea yeah I think you know historically a lot of a lot of forms of addiction affected a small part of the population certainly a minority of the population I think the one exception to that was smoking in the 60s and 70s. You know, nicotine addiction became a pretty big deal. But a a lot of drug addictions tended to affect very heavily. It affected those parts of the population heavily, but it affected small parts of the population. So a lot of psychologists and and other people and just lay people um, were trying to understand what it was about these people that made them addicted. And I think one natural thing to do is to say, what is it about this human being? Is there a personality trait? Is there something about some people that means that they are particularly susceptible to, to addiction? And for a long time, the answer was yes, there's an addictive personality. And I think one thing we've learned in the last couple of decades, given how widespread this particular form of addiction is, or these, these forms of addiction to screen-based technologies, is, is that it, this can't just be about a personality type. That if you, if you engineer an experience that taps perfectly into human needs, desires, motivations, you're going to succeed in ensnaring them and it doesn't really matter who they are there are not many people who if they had been born into the time we're in now would be able to just automatically or naturally resist the charms of screens if you sign up for a a facebook account for an instagram account for a twitter account for a snapchat account um, if you use email you will probably like 99 percent of other people at some point say man this is just taking up a colossal amount of my time how did i get here how, how am I, I'm in this hole, I have 10,000 unread emails or I spend hours a day on email or I spend hours a day on social media. What exactly is going on? And um, because this cuts across ages, you know, we've got young people and old people dealing with these issues. We've got people of different ethnicities, races, socioeconomic statuses, rich people, poor people, educated people, people without a big, strong, robust education. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live you deal with these products, you will become addicted. It'll be hard for you to resist them. And so um, I think that's that's just suggests that under the, the right or wrong circumstances, we can all become addicted. It's just a matter of putting us in front of those circumstances. And unfortunately, in the year 2020, we're all in that situation, particularly so during a pandemic. The individual cost of addiction is pretty obvious. It's about like a loss of freedom and it is detrimental, and in spite of it being detrimental, you cannot stop it. What are the social costs of an epidemic of technological addiction? What are, what are the consequences of something that's happening on that scale? Yeah, I think the social costs are probably the most urgent and the most extreme costs, as I see it. Um, you know, all you have to do is go to a restaurant or sit at a dinner table with with multiple people or go to a playground, watch kids playing at a playground, watch how many people around the kids, the adults, and even the kids themselves, depending on their ages, they'll have phones. And I think if you you rewind a couple of decades, in restaurants, people had conversations in a way that was natural that they they struggle to have now because phones are intermediaries. They sort of come between people. That's true in playgrounds. It's true in schools. It's true in everywhere where there are people. Go to a concert. You watch a music concert and people aren't, instead of taking in the concert live, they're taking it in through through the phone. And so I think I think what's happened is any any occasion where there's a chance for people to connect to each other, 
the, the possibility of that connection or the strength of that connection has been diminished by the presence of these devices. You know, if you ask people, would you be happy to have a technological device implanted in your body that does all the things a phone does? And people say, no, I don't want that because I want to enjoy experiences separate from, from tech. And yet 75 to 80% of us will say that we can reach our phones without moving our bodies 24 hours a day. Wow. So they may not be implanted physically, but they're, they, they may, there you go. <laughs> they may as well be there. They're really a part of us in such a fundamental way that it's almost impossible to have any experience without them coming, coming into that experience and becoming a part of it. Through this process of refinement that you outline, Adam, what do you think is the role that is be that they are uh, uh, synthesizing? What have they become? What is the void that they are addressing? What is the territory that is being occupied by these devices and these platforms? Or is it so? Is there so much variety that it's impossible to look at it as a singular phenomenon? No, I think I think it's a number of different things. For something to become truly addictive, for it to be something that we really can't resist, it has to be fulfilling a psychological need that isn't otherwise met. So, you know, you, you have, I don't know how many thousands of people who go into hospital, they have surgery, they get drugs at the end of the surgery to treat the pain they go through. And most of them will leave hospital. And those are very pure drugs you get in a hospital. They're different from what you get on the street. They're very strong. And yet most people leave the hospital and they don't develop a drug addiction. And that's because when they leave, they go back to a sort of supported life. They usually have some support from other people. They might have a job they return to. And so their psychological needs, broadly speaking, are generally met. The thing about these, these screens and about these experiences that become addictive is they, they need to be papering over some psychological need that hasn't been satisfied. The, the needs that I think are most prominent for us, for most people, and why social media is so effective is that Humans love feedback from other humans. They love interacting with other humans. Even if you're an introvert, you care what other people think about you. And, and um, you know, think about a little kid who draws a picture of an elephant. It doesn't look like an elephant. They show you the picture and you say, that is the most fantastic elephant I've ever seen. Adults want that too. That kind of unvarnished positive feedback. It's so important to our well-being. And it's, it's difficult for adults to get it in a way that kids do. So I think one thing, one of the psychological needs that these platforms are designed to meet is, is that that kind of unvarnished positive feedback, often for very small acts. You know, you take a photo of your plate of, of chips and someone says, that's fantastic. That looks like a great lunch. Suddenly you've got this burst of positive feedback. It doesn't take much. Um, other things, I think loneliness, anxiety, depression, um, boredom. I think, you know, it's, it's um, our boredom threshold is incredibly low. You get into a, into a lift with someone and they pull out their phones within the first millisecond of being in the lift. Yeah. That's because the idea of standing in that lift, it's partly it's awkwardness. Yeah. But I also think it's just that we don't know how to be bored anymore. We used to be really good at it. Like we, we knew how to endure a couple of minutes of boredom. <laughs> we don't know how to do that anymore. And, and boredom's not something that's like, it's not a wonderful human experience, but it turns out to be very important for creativity, um, for, for lateral thinking, for coming up with solutions to problems. If you let someone just stand bored for a couple of minutes, the mind goes to interesting places. And if you have a phone, the minute you put that phone in between you and that bore, that experience of boredom, you're short-circuiting your ability to just let your mind wander to often very interesting places. These products and these platforms ultimately are commodities and in a sense, an extension of ideologies that began much earlier in human history 
perhaps arguably with agriculture, certainly with industry, this idea that we can be corralled together, utilised and in a sense become just part of this process of commodification that the sort of that we, we no longer create tools to serve human beings human beings serve tools and serve these economic ideas so how do you imagine adam that of course on an individual uh, level of you know we probably just all need to go right i'm only going to look at my phone for an hour a day like that we need to obviously have some sort of discipline some sort of process some and, and mutual support and that's certainly that's something i'm interested in discussing but on a sort of a social and political level what kind of regulation do these company uh, do these companies need to be met with in order? Because you know people talk a lot about Facebook's political impact and social impact and potential manipulation of X Y Z. But what about the sort of more ubiquitous and disparate impact of the uh, of what you're describing? Yeah, I think it's such an important question. Um, this this idea that that we're being corralled and and used effectively uh, is is absolutely right. I think uh, you know you. You think about the the motives for for the existence of most companies. Um, Ninety nine percent of companies exist to make as much money as possible, and that's certainly true of the tech titans of the world that are producing these products. And the best way to make money, they've decided, is is not to create a product that we find is great for our own personal individual well being that we just return to because it gives us good things. It's to create a product that we return to independent of our well being and often to the detriment of our well being so that we will then look at the screen so that advertisers, people who wanna advertise their products will pay these companies a huge amount of money. And so, you know, you think of yourself perhaps as the customer when you go and use a product on a screen, you know, you're using Facebook, I'm essentially a customer, but there's a reason why you're called a user. You're a user, you not, there aren't many places where we say you're a user, we say it about drugs and we say it apparently about these tech products. And I think one of the reasons is that it's free it feels free. You're not giving money up, but what you're giving is your time and your attention and honestly your well-being in exchange for the whatever the fruits are that you get from this product and these, these platforms. And they do that because you aren't the consumer. You aren't the user really. Well, you're the user. You're not the consumer. You're not the person they care about. You're not the stakeholder that matters. What you are is the excuse to get the advertisers to pay them a lot of money. And that's just the business model that's been chosen. So when you ask about regulation, I think that's such an important question. I mean, one thing to do is to question the whole business model upon which these tech firms are founded. The business model is the ad-based model where they've decided, and they may well be right, that the easiest way to make lots of money is to have lots of individual users, not to charge them money because you want them to keep coming back. You want billions of them. And then you can tell advertisers, look, if you want to find a 37-year-old who likes... Um, a particular band and likes this particular artist and um, drinks three cups of coffee a day, we'll find you 12,000 of those people. Wow. You can send your ad to exactly that person. That's how you make lots of money. So if you're going to regulate, one way to regulate is to say, let's, let's w just change the model. Let's force some sort of change on that model. Um, well, like mandate payment. Yeah. One thing you could do is you could say you... I mean, a number of the companies have considered this. Something like, why don't we require that, um, you know, there's a small charge to use these platforms, a small barrier to entry, so that as a user, you can decide not to use it, or you can pay $5. And that $5, instead of your being a user whose, whose attention and time and well-being is sold, 
you pay a small amount of money and the company makes money that way. You know, if you're a company with 2 billion users and each of them pays, say, $5 a year, that's a lot of, a lot of revenue. Um, and in, in exchange for that, you aren't, you aren't sort of sold on to, to the highest bidding advertiser. So that's one possibility. I also think there are certain predatory tools that a lot of these companies build into their platforms that, that we should perhaps outlaw, not allow. Um, <laughs> what are and, they, and mate? Yeah, so I think one of the really interesting ones is um, the use of streaks. So Snapchat has streaks, a streak feature where if you send me a message and I send one back to you, a snap, that says we have a one-day streak and we do it again the next day. We have a two-day streak, three-day streak. The thing about streaks is as they grow longer, they become more valuable. Oh. And so for teens in particular who use Got to keep that Snapchat, streak going. I was like that myself going. when I was using in other areas of my life. The streak is a powerful thing. It can send you crazy. It's incredibly powerful and incredibly important to people. And so as it grows longer, it becomes harder to, to let it just pass by. And so what a lot of teens will do is they'll go on a vacation, they'll go on a holiday and they'll send their password to someone else so they can artificially keep the streak going. And that's great evidence that this streak does not encourage well-being. It encourages compulsive use. Compulsive. Um, so, so, that, so do away with the streak feature. You know, stop, stop reporting streaks and then people will engage because they want to engage rather than because they feel like they need to engage to keep a streak going. In a way, though, Adam, these companies would have to reverse the ideology that led them to their success. And like even you know, when you're talking about you know, there have been genuine geniuses involved in the inception, certainly, of like there's some of these tech giants that have real vision about human behavior. And this vision is purposed towards when you were describing that, May, I was thinking the product ultimately of Facebook, Instagram, whatever, is human attention, human consciousness, mm -hmm. the focus of your life. And that whether that's in a moment where you could be looking at your children or where you could be in a restaurant interacting or you could be looking at nature, your consciousness, your very experience, your beingness, your life, it's biopolitics. Your life is now belongs to them. You've been tyrannized by this. It's pretty yeah, scary. I, go back to 2003 and, and look at what Mark Zuckerberg was doing. He was, he was trying to work out how he could get the whole of Harvard to focus on something that he was going to put on a screen. This is before the days of Facebook. Um, and so he decides the thing that will make college-aged, um, you know, people most interested is, is rating how attractive other people are. You ask, you show people lots of faces of, of college students and say, how, how attractive is this person? That's going to be interesting to everyone in college. And he was right. He knew something fundamental about humans. If you put your scruples aside, you don't consider whether that's a good thing to be doing. If you're kind of completely amoral. I wouldn't even say immoral. It's not that he's a bad guy. I just think that he doesn't He doesn't think morality really seems to come into it, at least didn't at that stage. It wasn't about morality. It was just about gluing people to the screen, even in those early days. So yes, um, I think if you, if you are dealing with people who are very smart, they're capable of enacting their intentions, and their intentions are just to have you deliver your, your attention, as much of your attention of every 24-hour day, the game is how much of your attention can I capture and how much can I capture over and above what, say, the, the next company that's competing for your attention can capture? That's what these companies are doing. And the successful ones do it to the tune of hours and hours and hours a day and ultimately across the lifespan, years of our lives. So, so yeah, I, I think this is why we have to really interrogate the model at such, a, at such an abstract level and so broadly and say, is this, does this work for us as a species? And the answer, I think, is 
No. There's a terrifying nihilism there, Adam, at the heart of that that I'd not considered. And it seems sort of obvious, therefore, that the um, uh, antidote to that would be is a kind of ethics, morality that there needs. That, that, and again, I think that capitalism, consumerism engenders this amorality where our only purpose is the accumulation of profit, in this case, accumulation of profit via attention. Now, without the introduction of a sort of a potent ethical alternative i.e we do not live like this this is not who we are this is not the vision of humanity you know like all of these things are like presented as um sort of like vibrant and like you know uh, aspirational apple it's your friend it's you you can use it facebook we're all connected and like but what needs to be understood is that this is a nihilistic tool for your spiritual improvement imprisonment and uh, to end your psychological liberty and freedom and or, ironically the only way to convey that message is on facebook <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the thing if you're successful enough that you were saying earlier it's so difficult for us to just opt out right i mean so much of what's going on in the world today goes on on one of these platforms it's very very difficult to opt out and still be connected to what's going on in the world um, and that's that's such a huge part of this. This podcast is on Luminary. Luminary is a subscription model. We use, of course, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, everything to promote it, to encourage people to, to drive the subscriptions. You know, we're not doing it to rescue orphans. You know, right. like, so it's sort of like it's it's very yeah. There's, it's very difficult as long as there is. Um, a kind of as long as I feel like and it's interesting because isn't your expertise in sort of business economics and marketing is it like mm -hmm. as long as that these are uh, as long as this is our ultimately our ideology it's very difficult to sort of regulate or a kind of rein in particular aspects of it because it's, it's such a rampant ideology it's such a dominant culture in a way is it possible to regulate i.e Facebook etc without saying we need to review our attitude towards capitalism and economics more broadly because this is merely an extreme demonstration of a, a, a prevailing mentality well I'd love to believe there's a way to do this that's kind of soft-edged, where you don't need to get governments and legislation and punishments and billion-dollar fines involved. You know, one of the things people have talked about is this idea of a Hippocratic Oath that you apply to, to the tech world. So that in medicine, the Hippocratic Oath says, above all else, do no harm. So your job as a medical practitioner is, is ultimately to do good, but make sure you don't harm anyone. So every decision you make, the first question, the litmus test should be, What's the worst thing that could happen here? And once I understand that, I need to balance the, the, the benefits and the costs and then decide if this is a good action. There is no, there's no test like that for the tech world right now. So, you know, if I'm Facebook and I'm deciding, should I introduce the like button? What is the test? How do I decide if that's okay? And the current test is, will I make lots of money? Will I get people to spend an extra marginal 10 minutes a day on the screen? The answer is yes to that. But there's got to be that countervailing test, the, the Hippocratic test, which is what's the worst thing that happens when 2 billion people are glued to the screen for an extra 10 minutes a day or, you know, for their well-being when they're chasing likes? What's the worst that could happen there? And, and that's, that's, a, that's a really obviously a critical part of, um, of, of the engine that makes these platforms work, that, that like button. But also I think a large part of the harm that comes from them is that, that feedback that we get, that, that variable feedback where you don't know if you're going to get a million likes, one like, no likes, Mm. Um, and that's really what glues us. So, so yes, um, I, 
I, I wish there were a way to say, hey, all tech companies use the Hippocratic Oath and you'll be fine. But yeah. obviously when when the, when dollars rule or pounds rule or euros rule, it's very, very hard to, to find an alternative. Don't bloody work in medicine anyway, does it? If you think of the impact of ph the pharmaceutical yeah. industry on medicine, there's all sorts of things that are being prescribed, conditions that are being sort of promoted unconsciously, a, a mentality of economics, even in public health service that puts people under undue pressure. I mean, even with that ideology sort of distant, visible through the fog of chemicals that need to be promoted, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's hard. So if there is no idea, if it is truly the wild west this new territory yeah it is a new space isn't it a new world was discovered that didn't have a sort of a, a geography such as we understand it and it, it it's it's lawless and so our most basic and primal uh, our most basic and primal impulses become the governing ones territorialism hierarchalism profit domination these are the sort of the ideas that seem to be to be seem to me to be defining it like you know it's funny because you can see it um you know, I, I'm a fan of uh, like football here in the UK, and just yesterday I was watching something where like some football pundits went, you know, like Manchester United. If Manchester United want to be able to compete with Liverpool and Man City, they're going to need to achieve this number of assists and goals per 90 minutes. And here are some players that can achieve that number of assists. Goals. So these are the kind of transfers. Like it can, it can something that used to seem like a mystery now actually can be quite concrete and quite uh, like understandable, material, mechanical. And I actually rather enjoyed what it was sort of fascinating to see the power of rationalism but this kind of uh, extraction of mystery this sort of mechanization of human con consciousness you can see that the well we, we're beginning to experience the results because like you say we are like you know i remember the first phone i remember like i remember first getting a touch screen thing it's too hard i can't be bothered to learn how to yeah. do this but now this is that's my nature it's an, ex yeah, an extension of my anatomy yeah, as a as a, a Liverpool fan and someone who spends a lot of time focused on the game as well, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's funny when the game gets boiled down to numbers, and this happens with with sports in the US as well, where I live. Everything is about numbers, and um, you know, there's this Moneyball movement that that began in the, the early 2000s, which is you know this idea that if you break down any individual player in any sport down to the, all the numbers that matter, and you crunch those numbers, you could tell this player is good value for the price. This player is too expensive. But I think you're right that when you when you turn people into a set of numbers, into a set of statistics, into data, you you privilege that data, you privilege privilege the hard edge scientific part over the, I don't know, the magic of what it means to be human. Uh -huh. um, now that makes sense when we're talking, you know, massive billion dollar or million dollar transfers in in the Premier League, in in uh, football or in any sport. I, I can understand why. These are, these are big decisions and you're spending a lot of money. You want to make sure you're making the best possible decision. I think when you use that same logic to apply to the two point something billion people who use a particular social media platform a day, that's, that's where you, you get into really hairy territory because you, you, you stop paying attention to the things that I think are very important. And so because self-interest is driving you forward, you're going to keep paying attention to the numbers and you're going to sort of overlook it's an excuse not to have to pay attention to the well-being question. So what are we doing to these people? Also, it pertains to that possibly apocryphal but seemingly legit analysis there of Mark Zuckerberg of like that if you are just a sort of <laughs> like a reptilian me <laughs> mechanical, this is okay, well, I don't care. I'm not immoral or moral. I just, this is the best way to build these things. This is the best way to do it. And you don't introduce 
harmony, dignity, integrity, beauty, once these things are extracted, like, you know, as this sort of data-based model does, if you reduce everything to an arithmetic, I'm sure if you were like a a mathematician or an astrophysicist, I'm sure there's a poetry and a beauty in those things if you have uh, the potential to see it. But but what I want to say is, is that like, it's very difficult through rationalism and so I suppose a sort of a post-enlightenment problem to arrive at a place of beauty and love. You know, the most rational thing to do is act out of self-interest. That's the most, I should survive. Well, the only reason I wouldn't act out of self-interest if it was in order to achieve an alliance with a person that could help me achieve (laughs) self-interest. There's no reason to be compassionate or kind or anything. And (laughs) ta-da, here's your world. Yeah, I, that's it's a, such an interesting philosophical question, right? And that's one of the one of the big ones is: Are we capable of true altruism, where it's not about our our ultimate benefit? And people say things like, you know, we're as you just said, you know, if you're trying to build an alliance, we're we're willing to give up immediate self interest for that. But of course, that's also about longer term self interest as well. Um, you know, people who are heroic, who do heroic things, very often, if you look at bottom, there, there is still some self-interest to be gained. That doesn't mean every hero is doing it for bad reasons. Um, you know, someone who rescues a child who's fallen into a river, you're doing that in part because I think you feel that it's your duty and it's important to do, but there's still some self-interest baked into that. And it's very, very difficult to remove self-interest from these these equations. Um, I, I can't imagine a world in which these companies weren't acting out of self-interest where we somehow, you know, there was a philosophy that, that came in and spoke to them so deeply that they said, let's start really paying attention to consumer welfare. The solution has to ultimately be consistent with, with their, with their unless it, we're just going to introduce legislation that pre- prohibits them from doing what they're doing. To work together, we're going to need to find a solution that I think harnesses their self-interest in a direction that benefits consumers. Um, I'll say one other thing that's interesting when I first started talking about this, this is in 2013, 14, a lot of people actually said this is not really a big issue. Like we don't need to pay attention to addiction to screens. It was, it, it was only seven years ago, um, but it, it just wasn't on, on the radar in the same way. And I used to have to convince audiences when I spoke to them that this is an issue, like we should pay attention to this. It's not just that these are great products that we can't stop using because that's, that's the holy grail of creating good products, right? You want a product that people love and they want to keep using. And so a lot of people said, well, maybe Mark Zuckerberg's just the greatest product developer of all time. He, he just made the best product that we've ever seen. And so we're willing to give our time to it. And then three years ago, Sean Parker, who was one of the early investors in Facebook, came out and said something that changed a lot of my talks, because I used to have to begin with this convincing period. He, would, he came out and he said, honestly, we've never cared about that stuff. We've never cared about your well-being. All we ever cared about was, you know, we were young 20-something guys out of, fresh out of college. All we wanted to do was to make a product and the, the, the metric was how many minutes do we get from you? How much time can we capture? Maybe that's good for you, maybe it's bad for you, but that's all we really cared about. And so he made the argument for me perfectly. All I ever had to do was spend the first minute of my talk showing Sean Parker in this quote and everyone was on board. Clearly these companies just don't care. Plus there's kind of a, a sort of a if not a whistleblower culture, there's certainly evidence like in your book, mate, where you say like Steve Jobs was like, this is the iPad. It's, it'll do everything. It's the best thing. Do you let your kids <laughs> use it? No, I fucking don't. <laughs> we keep it under lock right. and key in the house. Yeah, like that. Yeah. You wouldn't like they're, they're sort of in. They are aware of the toxicity 
and danger of these products. So, yeah, I can see that. I, I recognize the journey that you must have been on. At least I can sort of understand it voyeuristically because, like, yeah, now I know, I know that I've got to change my relationship with this. I went camping and I notice it. It's default to me. I can see on my screen that I've had a couple of messages now and I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is something that's going to make me feel better. Now, like, see, the thing is, is my um, solution, as I say, comes from a perspective, a, a sort of a 12-step perspective, which is inherently spiritual. And I would argue you cannot avoid spirituality, even if you don't care for the term and certainly an alternative one I, 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 I would welcome. This realm has to be addressed because we're dealing with people don't feel good. People don't. People drink to feel good. People look at the screen mm -hmm. to feel good. The way you feel is your spiritual condition. Unless on a, I would say, an individual, cultural, social, global level, these that particular specific issue is addressed, then then the the teleology is cannot be resisted. Yeah, I think we're we're a world that is susceptible to these products. We're a world with enough loneliness, disaffection. Um, spiritual crisis for a lot of people that means that we're open to you know cults and religious um indoctrination all that stuff the same reasons we're open to those things mm. we're open to to things like screens they'll they'll give us what we need what's missing you know if you go back long enough and you look at how humans used to used to form groups they were very small groups you largely had a sense of who these other people were you knew them for most of your life or your whole life there wasn't a lot of interchange it wasn't maybe as exciting as living in a place where you get exposed to new people all the time, but it was it was much surer. And I think it met a lot of our psychological needs. If you'd put Facebook into a community of 10 people who knew each other from birth and who all sort of got a sense, well, this guy likes me, this one doesn't like me as much, you wouldn't need Facebook. Most of your needs would be met. You'd get the social support. It's like one big extended family. You have this kind of tribal living. I'm not saying, I'm not kind of, fetishizing living in a tribal, small tribal group. I think there are problems with that too, but it just illustrates the difference between that kind of living and the kind of living we do today, where we're all so kind of lonely and, and washed out into this world where there are just so many people and we don't have all that many strong, strong, strong connections with people. I think it's really easy to feel that loneliness that can be, that can be dealt with by something like a screen or a social media platform in a sense it's i would say um to your point there adam that it's not even a kind of a, a a moral comparison that needs to be made it's simply we evolved for one of those conditions and we didn't evolve for the other ones so there is this huge deficit and sort of an evolutionary disjunct because we were then we use like words like created and designed because I already sound like a religious nutcase and look like one too and indeed am one but like if we stick to evolved for like we evolved to live in a particular way harmony with the group harmony with nature and the only reason that we don't live in that way is not because of progress but because it makes economic sense for elites to have people accumulate Accumulate and aggregated from agriculture onwards and the sort of um, I don't know if this is an area that you 
have much examined, but I imagine it falls within your remit that agriculture is widely regarded to have improved, not improved the diet of people that used to have hunter gatherer diets, but it did improve the conditions of the people that were at the top of those uh, agricultural hierarchies. Same with industry, doesn't improve the life of some penniless urchin <laughs> cleaning right. soot up <laughs> in, a, in like in some paper mill or whatever, but it does improve the conditions of the landowner and the elite class same with technology like of course i love being able to chat to you virtually i love these utensils but they have not got any kind of forget hippocratic oath they've got no ethical underwriting other than the sort of sort of godless hedonistic devouring uh, saturn monster that is capitalism that you know i don't care as long as we get their minutes that's the sort of the mantra yeah yeah i think that's exactly right i think anytime you have a power structure where you have someone or some people at the top a small number of very powerful people at the top uh, in this case it might be tech billionaires it might be the the people who owned the the fiefdoms where they had you know thousands of, of lowly workers who were working on agricultural plots and things like that the people the system is not going to work unless it works for the people at the very top and very often because the people at the very top who are powerful who are ensuring the system works for them have different needs from the people at the bottom because it works for the people at the top it's by nature not going to work for the people at the bottom mm. they need to be exploited for that system to to be perpetuated and right now, the people at the top are the handful, maybe dozen tech titans who, who make most of the decisions that govern our, at least four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or 10 hours of our day. And we, the remaining seven plus billion people, are the serfs at the bottom. And, and that's, that's, that, that, that kind of works for them at the moment. And so it's going to keep being the, the system that works for all of us until there's some sort of intervention um, that 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 shifts things, but I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is it's a it's a recapitulation of what happened with the rise of agriculture and the rise of early technology and the industrial revolution. It's always going to be about the power structure. Whoever is at the top is going to ensure that the system works for them, and they'll be largely agnostic about whether it works for the people below. But because the people below want different things and need different things, those systems very rarely work for the people at the bottom. So we have to disincentivize them. And the only way to disincentivize them is to deconstruct the systems that reward that kind of behavior. So what begins as, oh, you know, could you remove the like button? Ends with we're going to break down all of your conglomerations. Not only yeah, that, yeah. the nations that house them, all of your governmental systems, every single one of them has to be dismantled. Power has to be decentralized and dispersed, absolutely, to prevent these patterns being regurgitated. We have to emulate I... our indigenous conditions somehow without necessarily losing the tools, but recognizing these tools serve us and we don't serve the tool. It's an interesting philosophical thought experiment. What happens if today Facebook doesn't exist anymore? Or what happens if today Instagram doesn't exist anymore or Twitter or any of these big platforms? What happens to us as a species and what happens to each individual? Like think about your own life. Um, I, I don't use Instagram much, but I use Facebook a little bit and I use Twitter a lot. That's, that's the big platform for me as an academic. That's where I you know, share ideas, get ideas. Um, I, I think there'd be some loss There'd be a, a, a very brief sense that I were less connected to the world in, at large, and I think I'd miss that. But in a lot of respects, I think, first of all, I'd have probably an extra two or three hours a day, which is 20 hours a week. 
which suddenly is 80 hours a month. That's a lot of time. That's just a month. That's 80 times 12. It's like a thousand hours a year. Suddenly you have an extra thousand hours a year. What are you going to do with that time? Well, maybe I'll build better connections with the people who are real, who are right in front of me. Maybe I'll build uh, a better connection with nature. Maybe I'll actually spend more time. I, I'm very lucky to live near the ocean and to have some beautiful natural areas around here. Maybe I'll spend an extra of that thousand hours, an extra 200 of those will be spent in nature. I guarantee you, I will be a better human being. Yes. I'll be a happier human being. I'll feel more enriched spiritually. More, I, I think I'll feel better on almost every imaginable dimension. I will lose something. I, I, I think it's always dangerous to, to have these discussions without saying there are obvious benefits of screens. And you've already said, you and I can communicate during this pandemic. I didn't have to fly to the UK. I'm in, a, I'm in the US. I have my family in Australia. We can all communicate. That's a miracle. But I think on balance, um, if we stripped away the worst parts of what screens are, and I think social media is some of the worst, I think we'd all be better off as a species. I agree with you. The argument is, that, of course, that without the incentive for profit, that this innovation would not occur. And I don't necessarily agree with that and I feel that due to sort of numerous factors including the things we've discussed at length but perhaps add to those obvious ecological decline we're gonna have to alter this model somehow it mm -hmm. seems inevitable yeah, yeah it does um, I, you know people have said that for a long time um, humans are so used to getting things free online there's so much information online that you're not going to get them to pay for services and honestly that's not true um, there are there are platforms now that work on a subscription model that requires pay. And if the product is something that humans want, they'll pay for it. And to me, that should be the reward. If you're if you're going to create something, if you're going to innovate, develop something new, and it's actually beneficial to people sufficiently that they'll pay ten bucks a year, or five bucks a year, or a dollar a year, or whatever it may be. Um, think of newspaper subscriptions, online newspaper subscriptions. Um, I pay for a, a dozen of those probably, and I'm willing to. I'd rather do that than be bombarded with thousands of ads. For me, that's worth. That's a trade-off that's worthwhile. Um, I'm obviously economically privileged in a way that billions of people on this planet are not, and so I'm lucky to be able to afford those costs. But you could find the right level where you're delivering the benefits to people, so you're actually making a product that's good for consumers. It's good for the producers as well. They're forced to innovate in a way that benefits consumers who then end up paying for these products, being willing to pay for them because they get true benefits from them. That's got to be the best case scenario for, the, for, the, for this re-engineering of the model, a model that doesn't privilege sucking up time and sucking up attention, but one that delivers well-being. And in exchange, we're, we're willing to give up some resources of our own and not just the resources of time and well-being. I'm similarly economically privileged, of course, but I, like, um, as well as, again, reiterating that Luminary is a subscription platform, I subscribe to kind of, like I do, like that masterclass thing, I like as right. a language thing where I'm trying to learn Spanish. And when, I, when you were doing your fantasy thousand hours, I was getting excited about that. I was thinking, oh my God, yeah, I would learn a new martial art. I would learn a new language. I would learn a musical instrument all those things I've been telling myself I'm going to do since I was a kid but instead became a heroin addict and then a sex addict <laughs> and then a tech addict instead of doing all of those things you know like it's yes this possibility like the possibility of surrendering of personally surrendering like I'm willing to give this up I'm willing to sacrifice this we well, you know when you were talking before about that idea of like, you know, we talked briefly about the sort of anthropological notion of sort of self-interest and uh, what do you call it? Reciprocal altruism, etc. I, of course, was as a religious nut struck by the I I image of 
this is the ultimate image of Christianity. The sacrificed man that you that, that this human being dies for for absolution for atonement and that you know it has like if it was just a historic event if indeed it was a historic event that um what that has no value but as a motif as a metaphor the idea of you have to sacrifice you have to sacrifice the the flesh which i suppose stands for pleasure in order to achieve um you know, awakening, rebirth, transcendence—whatever you call it—unless we're willing to let go of our infatuation with these trinkets, these objects, you know. But I'm, I'm reluctant to put the onus on the individual because it, it ignores the culpability of these ingenious organisations that are focused on mining our attention with a, a degree of expertise and skill that's impossible for us to manage. Yeah, I think I, an analogy to to the drug trade is is a good one because you know governments historically have have tried to punish users drug users mm. um, and so if you're discovered with a drug on your on your on your person possessing a drug you're often punished for that and and that's a little bit like punishing the users of platforms like Facebook you know and saying that you you've you've been kind of you've been found and now we've we found you and here's your punishment for that I think to say that this is all about individual self-control is a problem in the same mm. way as it's like saying to a drug user, this is all your fault. I think we have to go back to the chemists, the people who produce these drugs, the, the networks, the, the distributors, the traffickers. And in this case, it's the tech companies. It's the companies that push us into the position where we're, we're susceptible in the first place. And I think if you actually want to make change, if you want to make positive change, if this is about the right kinds of policymaking from a governmental perspective or from a legislative perspective or even from a spiritual perspective. If you want to improve the world, you're not going to improve the world by taking each individual who spends four hours a day on the screen and saying, you should use self-control. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> that's not going to do anything. You know, even if, even if a thousand people change their behavior, that's not going to help. That's a drop in the ocean. You've got to go away from the user and you've got to go up the chain to where it begins, to the origin. And so what you do is you say to the people who decided that we should be using a like button, hey, this is a disaster. You've affected the lives of 2 billion people. Yeah. This is where it needs to be fixed. But the same as with tobacco and as you amusingly observe in your book, like this with various drugs, that, you know, there'll be the equivalent of you've got to put a warning on it because you're not going to go to their allies. They're your allies in dominance if you are the government that imposed this regulation. And we're, of course, forced to acknowledge that government government works in harmony with these organisations, not in opposition to them, that even with something like Track and Trace in this country, it ultimately hand, had to be handed over to the, those, those organisations. These are the ultimate... Um, sovereigns in in our new landscape i was just thinking about that like how the preposterousness of persecuting drug addicts is like that you're under arrest you're in possession of drugs but but they're, they're brilliant I, I love them <laughs> get your hands off me it's sort of like so right. stupid like if you're creating these irresistible products then yeah what hope and also i love that bit in your book mate i've not read all of it because i'm in the process of reading it and reading it i was reading a bit of it on at night when you're saying like it's wrong to look at this blue light i'm on a kindle <laughs> reading it Going like this blue light messes you up because it's daylight. I'm like, oh shit, man! I'm gonna have to put this book down in order to or make the an book. exception. <laughs> I'm gonna inject some of the, the the font of your book into my very veins. But like, um, I like that bit where you're chatting about Freud and saying that Freud, when he first started taking cocaine, was, I've discovered this wonder drug. I've just been on another ten mile walk and I've come up with a brilliant idea. And then the, yeah, exactly. his letters become, oh fuck this! I'm depressed. My teeth hurt. <laughs> 
Exactly. I mean, you take someone who's as high functioning as, as Sigmund Freud, and I mean, obviously an incredible mind, an incredible talent, a brilliant person, just as susceptible to the same charms, you know, the same drugs, the same things that um, billions of, or millions of other people have been susceptible to. I think that's that's all you need to know, right? That that he, he as you say, there's this great story about him discovering um, coca leaves and freaking out about how wonderful they were going on these insanely long walks just walking for like 12 hours as a, as a semi, semi-elderly, not especially healthy man. And he's like, this is incredible. I feel like the greatest I've ever felt in the whole, my whole life. This is phenomenal. Um, and so, yeah, you, you put that in front of people. You dangle that in front of people. Of course, we're going to want that. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't put people in that position and expect them to always make exactly the, the right rational, logical decision. Um, and, and really, this is... This um this question you were you were drew the religious analogy to you know um, sacrificing and the idea that it's it's sort of inherent in being human that we have to sacrifice things for for other benefits. I mean that's that's sort of true about everything we do as human beings. You know any any long term benefit and there are so many things we have to sacrifice for for the long term like saving money for the future, eating well today so we're not unhealthy down the line, exercising so that we'll be healthier down the line cultivating friendships that might take time today so that later on we'll have like a lot of people around us who who support us. Uh, you know, all of this is just, this is the bread and butter of what it means to be human. And so I think when it comes to screens, yeah, to some extent, this is about individual liberty and the decisions we make as individuals. But the fact that there are so many of us, everyone I talk to is like, I, I wish this were different. I feel like I, I just need more time away from my screen. You know, my, I sit next to my, my partner or my spouse on the, on the couch. We both sit there glued to our screens. I'm with my kids at the table. They only want to be on screens. The fact that we can't just exert that, that kind of willpower suggests that it's a much bigger problem and that we're going to have to go much deeper. And, and I, I say up the chain to the companies that are foisting this on us. Yeah, you're right, you know, that it has to come from the producer. That's where the power is. The power is the centralized unit. The power is not dispersed. Now, can we get into some of your own private business? Uh, I see you drinking coffee. You're out of control. I am. What else are you addicted to? And then what is your own phone? You've said you use Twitter a bit and stuff, but what is your own phone use like, mate? Um, My phone use is... uh dispiriting <laughs> especially during the pandemic um it's um it's something i struggle with as well um i i would like to use my phone less than i do i have certain structures in place that that i think are fairly helpful what are they? one thing i do is i have a little box in my kitchen where um when and that's near where the dining table is that anytime we're there we're having dinner together i have two little kids a three-year-old and a four-year-old so they're, they're too young to really be exerting their will on on the family about how much screen time they get. I can still largely decide how much time they get in front of screens. But my wife and I, um, we try to put our phones away from when we're when we're engaging with the kids or when we're at the dinner table. We try to, you know, it's tough with little kids. They don't always want to sit down at the table, but when we can get everyone at the table together, it's, that's a special moment and there's something valuable about that. And so we try to keep phones away as much as possible. One other thing I try to do is um, on on weekends in particular, I try to put my phone on airplane mode for as much of the day as possible. And what that does is it means that I can keep using it as a camera. I'm capturing the little moments that are important that I want to remember without being intruded on by by emails and things like that. Like I'm not going to get a text message. I'm not going to get an email. I'm not going to get a WhatsApp. 
I'm not going to check my social media. And so say it's a Saturday from nine to five, I'm there with effectively a, a, a dumb phone, a phone that allows me to take photos, but doesn't do anything else, doesn't intrude on my well-being. Mm. So those those are some really critical things. Do you I do. breach it, I, mate? Do you go, well, I'm just going to have a quick little look at the WhatsApp? Some, sometimes. Some, absolutely How sometimes. I you? wish I were better about it. I know. Preaching, I, preaching this stuff and I'm, uh, I'm not behaving the right way. I, this, I've been very... Uh, I've been struggling with this forever. I mean, it's something that I'm not great with. And my wife, I, I can tell you probably 10 times a week, she'll say to me, and you wrote that book. And she'll see me there standing <laughs> beside, of, beside of the room skulking on my phone. It's something I do struggle with. Um, I, I I often wonder about what to tell people. You know, they want advice about this. And I'm not great at it. I, it's something that I try to deal with. And there are periods of my life where I'm great with it. And, you know, I... I'll go for a few weeks where I won't use my phone much at all and I'll feel pretty good about it. And then there'll, there'll be times when I, I really struggle and I want to connect again and and it's 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 difficult. Um, I think the very best thing we can do is not try to re- rely on well-being, uh, on uh, willpower, as we said. And so to have habits that are in place, like that little box that we have in our kitchen is really useful. Um, having rules about the bedtime, about bedtime. So when I go to bed, I, I usually like to do a crossword puzzle on my phone and then I go to bed and then I take the phone and I try to put it outside the room. So it's not it's not in the room with me. Um, and then I, I try not to check my phone in the first hour of waking up. Brilliant. And I almost never succeed, yeah, but tough. I try. Cause, it's really tough. Because you use it for the alarm. It's so, like, so multivalent. Uh, There's so many uses. Right, I'm going to hold on. Let me do this because I'm going to do all of these. I'm going to get a box, what, you know, that's for the box, lockdown box that they go in, particularly in front of the kids because we're sort of teaching them this is what we do. Because I've got, um, my children are just a little, a year younger than yours. I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And actually yeah. they are able to successfully dominate. <laughs> they're, they're, they're telling me what, I'll do whatever they tell me. But like, so yeah, I, I feel bad when I use the phone in front of them. But like, you know, there's things on here. There's that app I told you about, like where I'm, le- like I'm learning Spanish off of and stuff like that. But I'm going to I'm going to do all of this. I've been charging the phone downstairs. It's like I'm trying to appeal to you. I've already made you my king of tech addiction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so desperate to have mentors. Um, like So like, um, yeah, I'm going to do that box thing. I'm going to do that airplay all day mode. In fact, everyone listening to this, this should be that. This is what we're going to do. We're going to put our phones in boxes. We're going to do our airplay mode. Uh, Demaya, who works here, just tried to put her phone on a, a ladder, like a, a two foot <laughs> away from her, and looked all like she did this, mate. She put down ladder and she went, sort of, <laughs> like, stroked it, stroked it out of, like, to apologize to it for being disloyal to the phone. Um, so like, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow all of those instructions, but I'm going to recognize that yes, it's like in the short term, it does seem wise to have subscription model media and services that you pay for so that you are the consumer, even though that ultimately we would like to be awakened civilians or citizens or something. Um, but at least we're not users anymore. And like that, our attention isn't continually being commodified that should be sort of the campaign the end to make the producer of the drug culpable not the con- the consumer or user of the drug i think that's that's uh that's a great initial aim i think that's a good place to begin is uh seeing us not as as users but as as even if you don't want to go down the consumer route as customers you know people right. who choose to give our custom to the product we we come with all the knowledge we need and um, based on the benefits we get, we decide it's worth paying the costs. And usually they're, they're financial costs, like a small amount of money for a subscription. Small price to pay. Did you Do you know that Joe Rogan's reading your book? Yeah, I'm actually going on his show. 
Yeah, yeah that'll be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that'll sell you some books, man. Like, I, that, really, <laughs> like we were going to get you on anyway because I think maybe we've been speaking to your publisher or whatever. But I was listening to it. He did a really good episode. I think it was his first episode on Spotify with Duncan Trussell, who's um, yes. been on this show and I've been on his show and I've been on Rogan a, a couple of times. But they were talking about, um, you know, he was saying that you know it was having an impact on him. <laughs> That'll be a, yeah. I mean, it's a great show. And in terms of impact, man, that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, in a couple of months. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, I'm glad we had this fantastic opportunity to speak to you, Adam. You communicate these ideas very, very beautifully. I'm really, really enjoying your book. I wish I could get it put on parchment or perhaps on a cave wall so I didn't have to <laughs> disobey its edicts while reading it. <laughs> yeah, that- I realize there's, uh, there's something inconsistent about it, right? I'm foisting this product onto people and most of them are reading it on screens. We're, you know, I think reading a book on a screen is so different from scrolling mindlessly through Facebook or whatever. It's, I say it's fine. I read almost all my books on a, on a Kindle anyway. Yeah, right. We're good. We've got a pass yeah. for that. You're good. You're good. You, you, you get to, I'm going to bless that. Thank you. And would you mind if I took heroin just a couple of times a week just to, just yeah. to take the edge off? Yeah, I'm not going to bless that one. But I'll, I'll <laughs> Damn! Just, uh... I was so close with the blessings. <laughs> <laughs> nice one adam oh, it's so lovely to talk to you i hope we i you hope too. we get to chat together again mate that was fantastic me too valuable Thanks for screen time i appreciate it oh, adam uh, anytime yes. man very Take it thank easy. you cheers mate see you later cheers thanks for listening to under the skin with adam alter let me know what you thought of it on the old instagram or you know tiktok or whatever it is you communicate on sign up to my man list on russellbrand.com to get exclusive content live shows did you know i've done that live show like remember it was in the paper because I was moving around. I only went into that audience to test my eyes, just to see if my eyes were working correctly. Why are you shaking your head at that? Why, Jen? <laughs> Why, Jen? <laughs> What's the matter, Jen? Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm going to talk to you the same way I talk to Bear. No! No, it might help you. Why? What's the matter, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> you could point you. I'm not a dog. I don't know! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know! <laughs> Where is Bear in here? I really miss him. He'll come in in a minute, will he? Anyway, look, go back. And if you liked this thing with uh, Adam Moore, why don't you listen to Brit- Brittany Kaiser? Done that a couple of weeks ago. Or Logan Paul. He's a hunk. Or Professor Paul Dolan. What happened in that episode, Jen? And he's a psychologist of happiness. Why don't I remember these There's things? There's Damien Bradfield as well. Why don't the, I remember The We Transfer that? guy. I remember Damien Bradfield. He's, he wants us to do a no internet day or whatever. But there's always a no internet day. Is it? I don't know. Just don't use the internet. It's a job done. Well, thanks for joining us. And thank you. I'd like to thank the professional people that worked on this show. But I just simply cannot think of any. <laughs> <laughs> that was Under the Skin from Luminary.